Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, July 11th, 2021, and this is show number 844. Well, you might have noticed that I have a wee bit of a problem with my voice today. Earlier today, I recorded Security Bits, and I had an interview I was on, but it seems to have just crashed and burned tonight. So we've been discussing several options in the live show. Uh, one was to delay till tomorrow to record, hoping it gets better. But on the other hand, it might disappear entirely. I also tried whispering, but a lot of people said that just sounded weird. Then I experimented with an idea. I thought, okay, what if I just have Siri do the talk for me, which I've done before, but let's have a listen to what that would sound like. Hi. This is Allison Sheridan of the Nasillacast Apple Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, July 11th, 2021, and this is show number 844. Now, personally, I think that sounds a lot better than anything else, but we came up with a third solution. I'm going to go ahead and tell you all the front end stuff that I would normally tell you during the show, but then I'm not going to read the two articles that I had ready for you this week. I'll save them till next week because we have a good, long, beefy, nearly one hour security bits. I hope that's a good compromise that you don't want to listen to this voice for the next hour and a half. So before we get started, I need your help. Steve and I are going on a one-week vacation from the 25th to the 31st of July, which means I will have exactly one day to prepare for the August 1st show. Bart and Alistair are not in a position to do this show for me this year, so I need content, and that's where you come in. Please look around your desk and think about the gadgets you love, or an IoT device that gives you joy, or maybe fits, or an application that makes you feel more productive, and write it up and make a recording. I like the recordings before I leave, so don't freak out worrying about it. So I don't freak out worrying about it while I'm on vacation. So it'd be great if I could get them by Friday, the 23rd of July. If you can't get it done by then, but you're 100% certain you can get in during the week I'm gone, we can talk about that. Five to seven minutes is a good length, and the format should be an AIFF, WAVE, or M4A. I really hope you can find something interesting to tell the class. The Daily Tech News Show has been doing some really innovative new things lately. They've hired a science correspondent whose name is Dr. Nikki Ackermans. One of the things Dr. Nikki is doing is a mini-series called Seniors in Tech. This mini-series is, I think, five interviews that are slipstreamed right into the main DTNS audio feed. The second interview was with little old me, and it aired on July 3rd. It was kind of fun to be looked at as an elder statesperson in the world of tech. Nikki is a lovely woman, and we had a lot of fun together. In fact, we already have plans for two more times to record together on different subjects. You can find Seniors in Tech in your podcatcher of choice in the Daily Tech News Show feed, or there's a direct link to the episode with me in the show notes. Now, I'm even more excited that the fourth person to be interviewed for this series is our very own Sandy Foster. It's not up yet, but I'll be sure to tell you about her debut on this podcast. Well, I've just finished my latest video tutorial for Screencast Online, and this time it's on a product called Fission from one of my favorite companies, Rogue Amoeba. Fission is a simple audio editor that fits a very specific need. With most audio editors, if you import a compressed file, edit it, and then export it, the file will be compressed a second time. With Fission, the file will not be recompressed. Of course, you can also export from Fission in uncompressed formats, such as AIFF, FLAC, and WAVE. Fission will allow you to trim, split, and even add audio recordings together. Fission supports exporting of specialized file formats such as iPhone ringtones, chapterized AAC files, and publishing to SoundCloud. Now, it's important to understand what Fission doesn't do. Fission is not a recording application. That's what Audio Hijack is for. While Fission supports stereo files, it is not an advanced multi-track digital audio workstation like Apple's $200 Logic software. Fission is designed with speed and simple ease of use in mind for editing audio. Now, don't dismiss it for its simplicity, though. It's got some slick features built in like easy fade-ins and fade-outs around edits and batch conversion of audio files. You can get a free 7-day trial of Screencast Online and watch this tutorial and all of the current back catalog over at ScreencastOnline.com. A few weeks ago, I told Bart off the air 
that when he was done with his mini-series within a series all about the version control system Git in Programming by Stealth, I'd like a few minutes with him offline so he could explain how to ignore files in Git. I knew there was a way to do it, but he hadn't covered it, so I assumed it was just something quick he could explain to me. His reaction really surprised me. He said, don't, because he realized this is a very important part of using Git and that he would definitely dedicate an installment to it. So this week, Bart teaches us how to use Git Ignore to tell Git not to track changes to files and folders. He explains that there are files on your computer or even your code editor that maybe they may be creating that you don't want Git to track. And of course, there's all of the dummy test files we as humans create that would not be something we'd want to share with our coworkers or fellow open source contributors. I was nervous about using Git Ignore because I understood it relied on patterns, and I thought that would mean something along the lines of using regular expressions, which are kind of daunting. I shouldn't have been worried. Git Ignore patterns definitely don't require any heavy lifting. I was really looking forward to this installment, and it absolutely did not disappoint. You can look for Programming by Stealth, installment 120 in your podcatcher of choice, and of course, the fabulous show notes written by Bart are available at pbs.bartificer.net, and there's a link in the show notes. Okay, I think it's time I stop talking, and you hear me talking earlier today when there was nothing wrong with my, well, my voice sounded a little bad, but nothing like this. My apologies, and I'll talk to you again next week. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bruchatz. How are you doing today, Bart? Well, I'm the one who got rained on, but you seem to have caught my cold. Uh, like since yesterday, we talked on, right. on programming by stealth and I sounded fine. And this morning I woke up like this. Isn't this awesome? <laughs> it's it, it's amazing to me actually how different you sound between today and yesterday. It's it's, it's shocking. But anyway, I, uh, hopefully you get over it soon. Yeah, well, it's kind of funny. I used to, I normally lose my voice pretty much once a year. It's just a thing that happens to me when I get a cold, but uh, I didn't lose it in all of 2020. Why do you think that was? (laughs) I was going to say, not meeting other human beings means we don't catch colds, huh? That's right. And now uh, we're we're out of lockdown here. We're opened up. We're past 70% uh, uh, inoculated around here. We got real low rates and uh, now I have a cold. Yeah, I was going to say that wonderful Moderna or Pfizer or whoever it was vaccine is great against COVID. It does nothing for the common cold. Nope, but I did see uh, that they're they're proposing a uh, a vaccine that'll um, vaccinate you for COVID and the flu with mRNA. Ooh, that would be, that'd be nice to, to not have two. Because I've been getting my flu jab since I had my viral pneumonia what decade ago. I could, I could do, I don't want to have a situation where I have to have two every year. So yeah, combine them together. There's probably a lot of people listening that don't know that you disappeared from the show for like a year. Yeah. With with what later proved to be viral pneumonia. And also one of the reasons why I was rather worried about this whole COVID thing, because, you know, pre-existing respiratory conditions like, hello. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, glad and you're... Viral pneumonia is no joke because I'm still on inhalers now, a decade later. It, wow. it doesn't... Yeah. Anyway. Yikes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, other yikesy stuff. We have plenty to yikes about today, actually. Okay. Um, oh, good. Some deep dives, though. But before we get into that, a little bit of follow-up from last time. Um, the Western digital story has continued to evolve a little. There are more devices affected, which is the bad news. Ooh. There have been updates from Western Digital, which is in the good news column. They're not for every device, which is in the bad news column. And some people are cranky that the updates, the updated OS is less performant in some ways than the buggy one full of bugs that lets all your data be destroyed. So so there are people who are like, I don't want to upgrade because it's really slow. And I'm thinking, yeah, but no data seems worse. (laughs) Yeah, that's really keeping your eye on the important things, right? Yeah, and then the other two things Western Digital have done that I do think actually are very noteworthy. If you lost your data before a certain date in July, then they will they have a service available where they will recover your data for quite a reasonable cheap price. Um, and they have a trade-in upgrade program. So if you oh. have one of these affected drives, they'll give you money off a shiny new one. So oh, that might be something... Neat. Yeah. Now, one other so, thing I think we learned, I think you've got it in the show notes here, but we've passed it, is um, 
Last time we talked, we were talking about that these were ancient devices that had gone out of support many years ago, seven, eight, twelve, whatever, some mm. large number of years ago, uh, and that the we were surprised that the exploit took since I think it was twenty eighteen. But now there's actually a zero day that's involved as well, right? Yeah, there's more problems have come to light. So the the drives are more broken than we thought, <laughs> so and more of them. Of all the throw it in the bin suggestions you've ever made, I would think this would be one of them. Yeah, and I guess, yeah. Um, and the other actually thing that came to light, the Krebs and Security article highlights it, that um, a lot of drives that are no longer supported by the manufacturer end up being available really cheap online. Oh, oh, like eBay or whatever. And not just eBay, people just selling, you know, people selling them on, on stuff like the Amazon store. Oh, yeah. As, but they're basically, they bought stuff that was being cho- thrown out by other companies and they're selling it new, so they're still shrink-wrapped. Oh, they're just obsolete. Oh, oh that's even worse. <laughs> exactly. So, be a little bit of homework. If something is too cheap, why is it too cheap? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are you missing? So, anyway, it's it, that it actually has developed in interesting ways. Another story that developed a little. So, we talked, I think it was last time as well, about the Wi-Fi name with the percentage symbols that was causing iOS to crash, right. um, and you had basically to reset your networking stack. As I suspected, uh, it was, you know, it's uh, to do with the percentage sign escape syntax from C. And so, of course, people have figured out other combinations with the percentage symbol that have the same effect. So quite a clever one is percent secret club percent power, which also breaks things. Again, you have a percent S followed by a percent P. Oh, so it looks like regular words. It doesn't look as janky as that other one. Yeah, the other one was just janky stuff. This one looks a lot more human, um, like maybe some sort of super secret network club that lets you get extra fast Wi-Fi or whatever. It's kind of <laughs> clever, actually. It's a bit more human engineering there. Um, basically, until Apple patched this, and there is a patch for it in the latest beta, until that becomes available to all of us, don't connect your Wi-Fi to anything with a percent symbol. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. That's just stay away from that. I wonder if you could uh, keep and people keep- off of your network by putting percents in it. Like, without S's well, and P's. <laughs> you, if you're very careful and or very lucky, yes. <laughs> and it could come back to bite you very badly if you're not lucky. So, yeah, it's an interesting theory. Um, it actually ended up being a story sitting out here on its own. But anyway, I, I thought there were going to be a bunch of social media stories. There usually are, but we've ended up with just the one. Facebook is testing a new feature to steer people to steer people away from extremist content, um, and much to my surprise, it's getting pushback from uh, certain right wing groups as being censorship. And I'm thinking, no, <laughs> steering people who search for terms like uh, white power towards groups who de-radicalize people is not some sort of bias problem. That's called being a good citizen. Yeah. You know, there was a, so, there was another uh, article on the Daily Tech News show I thought was really interesting was these um, a study was done on people's satisfaction with how they interact with different social media based on what happens when you start arguing. So it's certain, huh. it was real interesting. I, I'll try to find the link to it, but it was it was <laughs> that there are certain platforms that just the way they work causes discourse, not screaming matches. And and it, it was it was interesting looking at the way Twitter does it versus the way uh, Facebook does it. You know which ones cause you to be more inflamed. Like one of the problems with Facebook is when you go in, uh, you look at a picture or something like that, you'll see a couple of comments, but it isn't all of the comments. It'll be like the latest comments or maybe the coolest, most interesting comment. But you'll have a tendency to want to respond to that when the context is lost because you didn't get the earlier comments. And and Ooh. they got into some real subtleties of just the way they can do it and. Uh, one of the platforms, I want to say it was WhatsApp was actually the one people liked the most that tended towards discourse, not screaming matches. It had a, a thing where it would say, well, do you, do you kind of want to take this aside to a private conversation? And that way you oh, don't have clever. a bunch of people all piling on in a discussion or annoyed that you're arguing with somebody, but you really do want to continue that discussion. And somehow it didn't turn into, well, let's take this outside. You know, it wasn't that. It was, <laughs> let's take this inside to a civil spot where the two of us can continue to discuss. 
it was it was really really interesting study that does sound interesting and i know twitter are putting a lot of um research effort into figuring out nudges as, the, as as this idea is called where you basically you design your platform in such a way that it encourages rather than enforces good things mm, yeah yeah and you can accidentally do the opposite if you're not careful where you accidentally end up making everything worse not because you wanted to but because you haven't thought about it enough and you've made design decisions that have that side effect and right engagement is such a dangerous thing because the algorithms for detecting engagement are usually detecting crankiness. And so if you have selective comments picked based on engagement, the chances are what you're actually doing is magnifying arguments. Oh, oh, interesting. So I would imagine that's what's going on with Facebook. Yeah. So anyway, that's uh, that's not. Nice if you do find that link, I want to listen to that because that sounds fascinating. Yeah, I uh, I did find the link to uh, from the Daily Tech News Show show notes, so it was on theconversation dot com. Cool. I'll put the link no, that the sounds fascinating. Yeah. Okay, uh, we have two deep dives and a sort of one shallow dive a little bit deeper in the show notes. Um, so this deep dive does not have a fire extinguisher icon. It has the opposite: a giant red exclamation point. This is one that you do actually need to pay attention to. It's called Print Nightmare, and it's pretty well named. Uh Uh-oh. The TLDR version is that if you're running a Windows server, you you almost certainly need to disable the print spooler by a group policy and leave it off, especially on your domain controllers. And home users definitely need to stay up to date with Microsoft's patches, including the emergency ones being rushed out out of band, and frankly, you should probably turn your print spooler off as well. And everything in the remainder of this section comes with a giant big caveat. This is an extremely rapidly developing and very confusing story. The chances are between my having typed it, us saying it, and you hearing it, it's wrong. <laughs> okay. But I will do my best to tell the story as well as I understand it, as up to date as it was at a little bit after noon Irish time when I finished the show notes. (laughs) So a pair of vulnerabilities have been found in the Windows print spooler process that allows for local privilege escalation and remote code execution. And those two together are catastrophic. I'm sorry to stop you here, but I don't know what a print spooler is. So the okay, so let's imagine a world without a print spooler, and then you'll know what a print spooler is. So without a print spooler, when you hit print, the app that is printing cannot do anything else until the printer is finished. Is that always? That's not always true, though, is it? That is the world without a print spooler. Oh, oh, oh! That is why a print spooler was invented. Okay, so it's like a like it's cached the information. It can go work on that while you go back and do something else. Okay, so all operating systems have a print spooler. Yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, a mechanism for spooling print jobs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so when you hit print on the Mac, a little app pops up with the icon of your printer, and it works away in the background, and Word or whatever submits the job to the print spooler, and then Word carries on with life. Right. It just assumes that the print job will happen, and it doesn't okay. know about it anymore. It's, it's handed it off. So that's the print spooler's job. Okay. And in Windows, it's a service. I think it's called spooler.exe, or it might be pspooler.exe, but it's, it's, a, it's a background process anyway. And it is riddled with at least two nasty vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. So remote code, sorry, remote, let me back up. Local privilege escalation means that code running on your computer that doesn't have system rights, which is the Windows equivalent of root and Unix or Linux or Mac, can gain system rights. In other words, something oh. that's running as you can become system without that thing going where your screen goes black and you have to give it permission. It so, that's, becomes, so that's not remote code execution. That's local, but that's some that, app or, that's, or, or, devi- or, or driver or something that shouldn't have root access suddenly can have it? Right. So local privilege escalation means that if something tricks you into running it or if, somehow some, if something somehow managed to run, it can become system. And then the second horseman of the apocalypse here is a remote code execution bug. <laughs> okay, good. Right? Just so you, so you put both. those two together, 
a remote attacker can run anything they like and anything running on your computer can become system. So a remote attacker can become system Jeez. by combining the two. Yeah, bad. Um, depending on how you look at it, it's either one giant big bug or two separate related bugs. However, officially, it's two because it was given two CVE numbers. So there are two separate officially recorded vulnerabilities. So effectively, it's, it's officially two. What does CVE I, I stand for again? Yeah, it's a data. It's an official database of vulnerabilities of the world. Not just. It's not I a think Microsoft it's, thing. It's it's of. It's anything. not a Microsoft thing. Right. I think it's a U.S. cert thing. Technically, I think okay. it might be technically American, but it has been adopted by Planet Earth. Okay. You will. Ju- you. I mean, Apple used them. Microsoft used them. They're pretty much always used because. It means that you know what you're talking about. So if you say that, you know, this patch fixes this problem. Well, if you're describing the problem in English, is it the same problem that you were thinking of last week? Whereas if you just give it a CVE number, everyone knows you're talking about the same thing. Oh, okay. So it's just, okay. A, it's just a numbering system for problems. Because uh, we can't give them all cute names, don't you know? Um, <laughs> Common vulnerabilities so, and exposures. Yeah, that yeah, that makes perfect sense. Common vulnerabilities and exposures. I'll try to remember that, but I know I've tried before. I keep on thinking concurrent versioning, and then I get lost <laughs> because, of course, I used to use CVS. But anyway, um, so the story starts with a priv- with just a local privilege escalation bug, and Microsoft thought they'd patched it in June. It was responsibly disclosed. Microsoft released a patch. It was part of the June patch Tuesday. And Microsoft assumed they were done. The original security researcher who responsibly disclosed it looked at Microsoft's patch and was horrified. They hadn't fixed the problem. They'd fixed the symptom. Oh, no. Uh, But they'd also closed the case. So he had no channel of communication with Microsoft and he found he wasn't able to reestablish it. So he eventually, in frustration, went to Twitter and just made it public. Oh, jeez. Meanwhile... An entirely separate group of researchers were also poking around at the Pooler, and they found the remote code execution. So the first researcher found the local privilege. The second crowd found the remote code execution. Now, they read the release notes for the latest Windows update and saw that it fixed a problem in the Pooler, and they assumed they had simply refound the already patched problem. But we now know that the patch wasn't actually a patch. And they had found a completely different problem with the Prince Spooler. Oh, they hadn't found the same problem again. But they thought it was perfectly safe to release a proof of concept because sure, it was already patched. So they released their code. Oh, no. So they which made a zero been, day. Which should have been considered a responsible thing. Like they, they, it, Well, they, they thought they were the being patch. responsible. Oh, yeah. So they released their code. The whole world went, oh, my God, no. They unpublished the patch, but of course, once it's on the internet, it's on the internet. So that genie was out of that bottle and it was not going back in, no matter how hard the security researchers tried to hit control Z. That that was just not happening. Mm. So we now have a zero day in the wild, giving remote code execution with local privilege escalation. Bad, 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 bad. How how do you get exploited? What what do you uh, have to do to, to get stung? There were quite a few different mechanisms, but one of them involved sending the Windowsy domain-like command to try add a printer to a print server. So you know the way if you go to print and there's no driver, your Windows machine can sort of do something to get it set yeah, up. Yeah, doing so that, that would mechanism. cause you to get infected. Yes, because that involved calling the function which had the bug in it. Oh my gosh! But that's something people do all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not, that's not, you've got to go to a dodgy porn site to download illegal copies of Adobe hacking. That's do something completely normal and expected behavior on your PC and get hacked. Well, okay, so no, so that's how you exploit the bug. So basically, there would need to be some malware that can see your Windows domain and then send this query and oh, then they okay. get to take over the server. Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. So you do still have to go to a, a porn site and download uh, Adobe for free? <laughs> or do this thing that I never understand people do, where they have Windows machines sitting on the bare internet. Oh, jeez. I like Not to think of the internet router. as having viruses just running in its veins, you know? Like when you tap uh, in, you've just, you've just started sucking it into your own bloodstream. 
if you that's a pretty good description right. the, the other word i hear is background radiation it's just constantly oh, yeah. be, you're just constantly being hit by low level radiation all the time and when there's a zero day it's not such a low level anymore it becomes quite fatal radiation very quickly so if you disable um, the print spooler on your pc you can still print you just have to wait yes yes okay so that is it's the just key. inconvenient uh, yeah now if you're running a print server for an organization that's probably more of a problem not to have a print spooler because then I don't think you can have two jobs at once. So the chances are that if you're a central printing service, I think your choice is either turn off printing for a few weeks until this is all fixed or know that that machine is in grave danger and then it becomes firewall the bejeebus out of it. Hmm. Which means but you most can't servers, <laughs> Yeah, most servers don't need to print or be printed through so most servers should have this turned off. Okay. If you have printers connected to your domain controllers and you allow people to print through your domain controllers, you have a much, 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 much bigger problem. Okay. Um, but yeah, yeah. So but basically, for home users, they should for home users turn, it off too. turn your print spooler off and you're grand. And if on those occasions when you do have to print, Word won't go into the background; it'll just sit there while you're printing, and the print dialog will stay up until it's finished printing. Yeah, just get up and stretch. You've been sitting at your computer too long anyway. <laughs> yeah, and maybe save a tree. Maybe print a bit less. Yeah, I, luckily people don't print as much as they used to. But is it obvious on Windows how to disable a print spooler? I've never heard of that. Uh, there are instructions in the show notes, or in the links in the show notes. Okay. Um, it, it, it's, it's, a oh. Windows, it's a Windows process, so you go into that thing where you control the services and set it from automatic to disabled. Okay, all right. Well, uh, I think for stay Windows-y tuned people, until next time. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, the, oh, we're not done with our storytelling yet. Oh, we aren't. So at this point in time, we have a zero day in the wild through to confusion. Uh, but the confusion isn't done because everyone is now panicking and pressure piles up on Microsoft. So they rush out a patch, an out-of-band emergency patch. And everyone breathes a collective sigh of relief. Yay! You know, there were all these things doing the rounds on Twitter with these amazingly complicated flowcharts going, if this, then this, then this. And, you know, well, if you don't want to disable the print spooler, you can turn this registry setting, but then you have to do this. And if you're on this version of Windows, you have to do that. It was this amazing maze of mess. Uh, And then, of course, security researchers were poking at ever more functions. And eventually the entire diagram collapsed into, do you have print spooler on? If yes, you are vulnerable. And then Microsoft released a patch and everyone made a new joke chart. If patched, are you vulnerable? No. Ha ha ha. Easy peasy. We're all good. So I went to bed and by the next morning, security researchers found that the second attempted patching was also not correct and had basically plugged the current method of exploitation instead of plugging the underlying problem. So yet again, security researchers had within 24 hours found new ways of bypassing the second patch. Oh, jeez. So everyone at that point threw their collective hands in the air and just went, just turn off the print spooler. And in fact, if you're running a server, use a group policy, turn it off on everything in OU servers and leave it off. Until Even when this is patched... No, just leave it off. This is an attack surface that isn't needed. Why do your servers need to print? Just leave it off and never have this happen again. It just should never have been exposed in a server unless it's a print server. Well, so this is where you're confusing me again. I thought this also affected individual PCs. It does, but human beings like to print. So just turn it off and leave it off is not a valid answer for human beings. Oh, I see. But in terms of the servers, the answer is just, just leave it off. That attack surface, just get rid of it. Never think of it again. Whereas for end users, the advice is, generally speaking, patch as soon as Microsoft release something. Don't connect your Windows machine straight onto the internet. As in, don't don't have your IP address available directly from the internet. Be behind a home router. Okay. All right. And you're probably you know, and don't run random stuff that you downloaded <laughs> from the web. But that's just good advice anyway. So <laughs> don't download free Adobe from porn sites. Thank God Flash is dead. What, what is it people trick everyone into nowadays? Oh, I don't know. So what's, what's the new downloaded version of Flash to see this video of a celebrity with no clothes on? What's, what, what's yeah. replaced that meme? <laughs> Probably here's free fi- Bitcoin. Here's a fix for your print spooler. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, the irony. You're, you're probably not wrong. Free face masks. I don't know. Yeah, they'll find something they always do. Okay, so deep dive number the second. Uh, you sent the story my way and it, I had crossed my own radar anyway. But uh, I'm sorry to say it has not been a good few months for Audacity, which is an open source audio editor, pretty much the open source audio editor, let's face it. Right, I mean, it's, a, it's actually a full, it's a full multi-track digital audio workstation. I mean, it, you can record multiple tracks, edit, split tracks. Do it's yeah, it's it's very powerful. It's even it's got very noise can, uh, noise removal tool that I've uh, used for years. I would say it is extremely powerful, but very much suffers from four geeks by geeks because the UI is painful <laughs> in my opinion. But yeah. the power it, it reminds me of the GIMP, like amazing yeah. math. Yeah, terrible UI. <laughs> anyway. The story that broke through and has made it into the relatively mainstream consciousness is a change in Audacity's privacy policy. Uh, the bottom line is that when you use the app, it will collect data, it will phone home with that data, and for the first 24 hours, your IP address will be associated with that data in the clear. After a day, your IP address will be pseudonymized. So not anonymized, pseudonymized. So you can still all be connected together, but not connected to you in theory, unless you can reverse engineer it, which you probably can. They will store this data within the European Economic Area, which for those of you who don't watch enough CGP Grey, that is the EU plus a couple of affiliated countries like Switzerland. Basically where the GDPR reigns. So that does mean that there are GDPR obligations on Audacity, which is good. However, there are a few other... So it says in the new privacy policy, we will store the data in the EAA and we will send some of the data to our headquarters in Russia and our attorneys in the US. <laughs> so it's like, okay, not quite so good. Then there's an extra little kicker. So the GDPR is very specific that you have extra responsibilities if your users are 13 or under. You have their personal information, deserve, not just deserves, requires by GDPR extra protection. It is a, It comes with responsibilities. And to avoid taking on those responsibilities, the terms of service for Audacity have been updated to say that the app may not be used by those under 13. Now, this is an app commonly used in schools. <laughs> This app was also written under the GPL. The GPL does not allow for this kind of restriction, so right, it's probably right. a license violation, and it is certainly a serious problem for all the schools using Audacity. And it's, it's so just the, like the wrong way to do something, to just say, well, don't use it if you're under 13. Wait. Yep. <laughs> Needless to say, there was an immediate backlash, and some security tools started risking the app as a probable spyware, I think. Um or malware anyway of various kinds so that was kind of interesting that might so have the been company baby but yeah a bit but only a bit really but when you when you say in your terms of service that you're going to give data to the russians and the united states by the way i'll really right, glad to be piled in with that group but okay <laughs> and also why are you saying we will anonymize it but not until after 24 hours it, that sort of makes me think of bowing to totalitarian state in some way that sets off many alarms in my head when well, i think that was their right. revised one too that to make people feel better i thought that was already in the original was but it okay it, all right i could be wrong i, I won't I won't, it, I won't swear to it but either way it, it doesn't particularly i don't think it makes that much difference which one it's in Okay. Uh, they did. They did respond to say uh yeah we chose our language poorly uh we'll have another go uh, they did not, in fact, in any way respond to the age question, by the way. So that's still completely unaddressed, last I read. Um, and that's what's made the news this week. But this is actually chapter three of a longer story oh. that I've been following for a while. Okay. Because it's been bubbling away in the open source community. So once upon a time, okay, no, <laughs> back in May, a company named Muse bought Audacity. So the code is open source, but the code still has a copyright, which can still be owned, which means you can release it under other licenses too. Mm -hmm. And open source licenses don't cover service marks or trademarks. So the name Audacity, the icon, that's not GPL. That's owned by whoever used to own Audacity, whoever used to own that project. Oh, okay. 
So it's actually quite normal for open source software to be owned by for-profit companies. Red Hat own RHEL and CentOS. Canonical own Ubuntu. So, so you could fork Ubuntu, but you couldn't call it Ubuntu. Ubuntu. Because Correct. The, you the could fork Linux. Canonical. Yeah. Oh, okay. Linux is owned by the Linux Foundation. You can fork Linux, but you can't call it Linux. Because the trademarks and copyrights are with the Linux Foundation. Okay. Except that Linux is kind of like Kleenex, right? <laughs> You could, I, that would be a court case you could certainly bring. That would certainly be an open legal question that would not be an open and shut case and the judge would not make a summary judgment. I think that would have to go to trial. But anyway, so Muse bought Audacity. And their blog post announcing it immediately set off the wrong tone. They didn't actually say anything objective. They didn't actually say anything factually problematic. But there was something about the tone that just set everyone's hair on the back of their neck standing up. It just didn't sit right. And that was the first thing that crossed my radar. And the discussion was basically, might be nothing. We might be overreacting. But I don't think this company understands open source. And I don't think this company is going to be a good steward of this product. I hope I'm wrong. Okay. Mm, bubbled away. That was just spidey and sense feeling, though. Just a spidey sense tingle. And then that was followed about a week later by the first chapter of this saga when they updated, the new owners updated the license, uh, the contributors agreement. So if you submit so code to the official repository for an open source project, that very often comes with an agreement you have to sign. So... That's normally used for things like saying that you hand over the copyright to the Linux project or whatever. Because that way the Linux project have the right to change the license from GPL2 to GPL3 later. If if they don't own your copyright, then the code can never change from its current license. Oh, okay. There's all sorts of perfectly legitimate reasons. And usually, in fact, a well-run open source project will have an agreement so that everyone knows what page you're on. It just makes everything easier if you're clear and honest about these things. Right. So so having an agreement isn't a problem, but they made a change to the agreement. And again, it wasn't massively problematic. There were a few things in it that were more restrictive than had gone before. And you could easily write it off as being, yeah, well, it's a new company. They want to have more rights than the old open source project had. Fair enough. But again, everyone's spidey sense was going off because it's like, this is out of tune. This isn't on its face wrong, but this is not the way open source... These people are not part of our community. This is off. And so the murmuring got a bit louder. And then, chapter two, and these just keep escalating. So chapter two, a commit was made to the public repository. In fact, it's a Git repository. Containing new code for gathering telemetry. Is that like geolocation? No, telemetry is just app usage and phoning home with it. So basically Google Analytics. Oh. But app analytics rather than website analytics. Okay. And that immediately set a lot more people off. And then you combine the addition of telemetry code with the new privacy policy, and now you have a crisis. Yeah, so now you're you're gathering data about me and you know my IP address and you're going to hand that over to the Russians in the United States. Yeah, and actually one of the other people that they expressly list that they have the right to hand it over to is anyone considering buying the company. Oh. Which is a, a particularly nasty one in my opinion. Well, because that would be valuable. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So but that's how that's how what open source is about. That's what you that's, right. that's what free Freepy. Yeah. That's what Freepy yeah. is about, right? Right. So this, the impression I get is that this is a Russian company who wants to take an open source project, turn it private and profit from it. This is like a vulture funds sort of a takeover is the impression I get. But it is open source. So that means that it is perfectly allowable by the license for this code to be forked. So, so for people who aren't uh, following programming by stealth, to fork a, a, an open source project means to basically make a replica of it, and then you can either continue developing it on its own, or you can be folding new bits back into the original project if you so choose. 
Yeah, it's a good exactly. Description. So you set off in a separate direction and you may or may not take selectively from changes going on in the original. So you, how far you diverge is entirely up to you, but you diverge and you start to make your version of the code in some way different. So the obvious thing would be that you would remove the telemetry code, you would remove the phone home code, but you would keep the rest of the code the same would be the most obvious fork. Right. You could actually remove commits, right? Yeah, but you'd probably want to be cherry picking a little bit more carefully because if they do a bug fix and that's all in the same commit along with the telemetry code, well, you keep the bug fix, but you throw the telemetry out. Right. So a perfect example of forking is all the different varieties of Linux, right? Yes, absolutely. Well, that's... Yes-ish. I mean, That's at some point in time, they they started from the same great-grandparent? No. No? Not really, actually, because Linux, as you know it, as a distribution, is actually a collection of separate open source projects collected together. So that they actually mm. all use the same Linux kernel. So they're not oh. each making changes to the kernel. Oh. They're taking the kernel oh, and combining it with. Okay. So it's, it's more of a collection. It's the difference in a molecule and an atom, I guess. Uh, but anyway, let that, that that's not here or there, because what's interesting with a fork is that it actually takes effort to maintain an open source project, right? Just having the code isn't enough to have a project. Someone has to take responsibility for packaging that code so that it is available as an installer that XE for Windows, as a DMG file for the Mac, as an RPM file for CentOS, as a DEB file for Ubuntu. All of that work takes work. Uh, The fact that the code is open source does not in any way give the open source community rights to the name Audacity. Mm. So if they are going to fork against the wishes of Muse, they need a new name. Mm -hmm. And that new name needs to earn reputation and get recognized among the community. So all of those schools and stuff need to know that there is a fork, need to know what it's called, and need to trust it enough to change to it. And that's by no means a given. How, I mean, it has been so long since MariaDB forked from MySQL. How many people just keep using MySQL because that's what they've always used? I've never even heard of MariaDB. Perfect example. And you're in our nerd community. Yeah, yeah. So MySQL is now owned by Oracle and it, it, it its licensing and stuff is becoming more restrictive. And people are extremely worried that Oracle are going to basically turn it into a freemium product. And so MariaDB forked pretty much the day after Oracle bought MySQL. And MariaDB has actually been very actively maintained and is a fantastic database, and I've been running it for years. But even though MariaDB is a real success, almost no one's heard of it. Yeah. A worse example is LibreOffice. OpenOffice is abandonware. OpenOffice sucks. OpenOffice has been left to rot That's since Sun, Sun bought it, right? Well, Sun bought it and died. Right. Well, and, and, then, and then Oracle, Oracle bought fact. Sun. Yeah. LibreOffice is the fork and has been actively maintained and driven forward, and yet people still download OpenOffice. Hmm. Because LibreOffice just hasn't got the mind share. In my opinion, so LibreOffice is kind of sucky too, but uh, not as sucky. Not as sucky, right? It's being proactively developed, and if it had more take-up, it might develop more quickly, but the name is Sticky. These, these things are way stickier than you would like to believe. So you're saying that's going to so, be the problem for, for Audacity. Can they call it Audacity 2? No, uh, because Audacity is, think of trademark law. Would that pass muster as not confusing to customers? No. It wouldn't, right? Yeah. Okay. So it is by no means impossible that a fantastic fork will emerge and take over. But it is by no means a given. Especially the takeover so, part. Now, it's already been forked, right? I sent you a, a link to... Oh, yeah. I, I think that one of the podcasts I was listening to said there's at least 10 forks that they found, and they just did a search for two seconds. The question is, which of these will get a community behind it? Yeah. And will it succeed in becoming established to the point where it is included in stuff like Debian, that it's readily available for Windows, ideally in the Microsoft Store, would be great. You know, mm-hmm. it just really get it out there. Yeah. I, I did, uh, I, the guy I saw that had uh, done a fork was doing a call for names. And one of my favorites was, uh, what was it? Was it Temerity? Like audacity yes. and temerity. Yeah, I mean, and if you can do that, if you can be humorous, you actually stand the chance of doing what MariaDB didn't. 
Yeah. Right? If it's funny and humorous and it gets picked up on the nerd blogs and it gets out there and the school techie who doesn't really follow all the stuff that closely but does watch stuff on Facebook or Twitter sees it go by, it can it can wedge its way in if it's funny. So I hope, whatever they do, I hope it's clever. Yeah. Huh. And I hope it has the community behind it. And the thing about Audacity being. is it sounded like audio too. Exactly. But I, as I was joking with you, well, tempo is a musical term. Yeah. Yeah. So temerity, you could play it up, right? Yeah. Plus, it sounds you like audacity. <laughs> and it sounds like audacity. It's a funny play on words. It, it, I like it as a name. And you did the dictionary definitions of the two, and temerity sounds like a really good one. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's sad. As I say, it is definitely sad. I mean, there is a second way this could turn out, by the way. Muse could see the light. Hmm. I'll be honest, my spidey sense says, nope, not going to happen, but it's not impossible. Is there, so I should. Yeah. Is there a way to uh, search for Audacity's, uh, all the forks of Audacity? I think, I not, you never all, okay. because... But I mean, like within G- GitHub, here's one called Tenacity. If it's on GitHub, then you should, if, if you're on GitHub, I think there is a way to see every fork. If you go to the original project, there'll be a, a fork icon at the top, which will have a counter, and if you click on that, you should see all the forks. Oh, okay. At the very least, you see how many there are. But they're only the forks inside GitHub, right? Right. You can, you, you can go to the terminal and type, git space clone space paste in the url and you now have a fork but that's yeah. not listed anywhere yeah, yeah. i was so, just thinking and you can go to gitlab GitHub. and pull in a, you know pull in the project and you have another fork so the answer is yes and no um but yeah so watch this space i think is the answer here this is very concerning there's 1600 forks but a lot of those are just people who've contributed one change, right? If you find a bug in Audacity, you'll oh, fork okay. it, you'll make your fix, and you do a pull request. Right, So right, that right. doesn't yeah. mean that's a response to this. So it's too quick. We're just going to have to watch this space. Okay. And hopefully a good community builds up, and this turns out to be a turning point for Audacity. Gets lots of energy in the community. The GUI gets the TLC it needs. And five years from now, we look back going, the best thing that ever happened is that that Russian crowd tried to ruin it. Look how amazing this is now. Right. So watch this space. Okay, on to action alerts. Um, Another data leak that involves LinkedIn. There's some confusion as to the mechanism. LinkedIn say it wasn't a leak, but the data's real. It's on 700 million users. So at the end of the day, those 700 million users are very vulnerable to spear phishing attacks. So if you are a LinkedIn user, beware that you may be getting targeted phishing thrown at you. Oh, goody. And and exactly the who and the why and the wherefore to me isn't important. Certainly not on security bits. The whole point here is we just tell you what you need to know. What you need to know is if you're on LinkedIn, the bad guys can buy enough information to make a convincing attack at you. So keep your suspicion shield at maximum when you're reading your email. One of the things I love about uh, uh, the company Lindsay works for is they they do things to try to get you to click that are that they're they're self phishing, and it's gotten so effective. uh, An HR guy sent out something that was basically just sent out a link, and Mm -hmm. immediately, like like ten minutes later, he had to send out another one going, "Okay, that really was me. I'm sorry. I really should have explained what it was and why I was sending it so that you'd know that it was real." But good on you all for not clicking it because he just got buried under emails going, "Is this real? Are you fishing me?" Good. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was really. It was a really good response. It was. It was pretty cool. So I think the self phishing attacks are a good idea. They they really help raise awareness, and that's the only thing you can do is is raise people's awareness. Just put the shields up in your organization. Um, moving on then to worthy warnings. Um, the first one, there's no scandal here, but I would say this is a cautionary tale. Our modern mobile OSs that have app stores, whether it be Android or iOS, they have parental controls. Those parental controls were not added for the crack. They were added so that your kid couldn't cost you $1,800 buying stupid things in a game. Oh, no. So the headline is, Parent forced to sell car after child racks up $1,800 app store bill. 
no one is pointing the fingers at Apple because Apple provide all the tools. You do have to turn them on. Yeah. So I like how in the article it says his son may have memorized his iPhone password while whilst looking over his father's shoulder. I was at Lindsay's house and I, I needed to do something on her phone, so I held her phone up to her face and my four year old grandson says, Oh, you don't have to do that. Here's her password. <laughs> <laughs> there is something to be said for touch ID, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> um there's also a lot of reporting coming out of Brazil. Oh wait, sorry, I skipped one. Uh, if you use Kaspersky's password manager, and I, to be honest, my spidey sense go off on that one. I don't think I'd use Kaspersky anything, but that's neither here nor there. If you use Kaspersky's password manager, they um, their password generator was not good. They basically made some cryptographic boo-boos, and the end result is that the passwords are guessable. Oh, no. So if you use, if you use their password manager and you let it generate your passwords for you, then you need to go and reset all of your passwords. So I hope that's not too many of our listeners. Okay. But that is a worthy warning. Then the last one here, on another week, this might have made a security medium. It was kind of on the edge. And I'm still somewhat confused by the detail, and I think everyone is, because this is based on translations of reporting in Spanish from Brazil, from secondhand information from people in the cybercrime talking to journalists who aren't very technical. So there's an awful lot of Chinese whispers going on in this story. But anyway, the bottom line is there is a gang in Brazil making a lot of money stealing, emptying people's bank accounts. And that's the end of the process. So the end of the attack is bank account empty. The start of the attack is steal iPhone. And between those two, there's something happening. And initially, everyone assumed that this gang had gotten their hands on a grey key or something like that. And that they're doing some sort of advanced hackery to break into the iPhones and somehow get the details to steal the money. It would appear, based on an interview with someone who says they were in the gang, that it doesn't have to be that complicated because most people don't really protect their stuff very well. As best as I can figure out from all of the broken reporting, missing every key detail I want to hear about, in order for this to work, your phone, your iPhone has to have a physical SIM, not an eSIM, because they have to switch the SIM into a different iPhone. In order for the SIM switch to work, your, your SIM has to not have a PIN, because if your SIM has a PIN, you'd have to enter it on the new phone. Right. So obviously these don't, because if you enter that wrong three times, you need the PUC code. So clearly the pin is not enabled on these SIM cards. And unfortunately, every Irish carrier used to always force pins. And these days, I think most of them don't. I think when you get a SIM card out of the box, it doesn't have a pin these days. Maybe that's not such a good idea. Um, You can turn the pin code on in the settings in your iPhone. Might be worth doing. Mm. The other thing that is clear from all the reporting is that the attackers have to figure out your Apple ID email address. And apparently most people, if you just do spend a little bit of time poking around on their Facebook or whatnot, you can generally figure it out quite easily is what the guy talking to the reporter said. Mm -hmm. But there's a little bit of human intelligence needed here. So they need to figure out your email address. So it's not an automatic thing. Get iPhone equals get money. They have to do a bit of homework. Okay. And then the last point I think is critical. In most cases, they seem to get the passwords out of the notes app. Ah, I know a lot of people who put their passwords in the in the notes app. Yeah, because it syncs. Yeah. There it is, right there. Super easy. Yeah. So yeah, it's the I don't quite equivalent. understand what a pin on a SIM card is. Uh oh wow, okay. So this is probably because in the days when we were in the early days of, of GPS, not GPS, uh, GSM, you guys were on CDMA. So for us, for years, every time you turned on your phone, you had to enter your PIN before your phone could see your SIM card. Okay, so that's an old old thing. It's an old technology, but it's still on the SIM cards. Your SIM card basically has a lock, like your ATM. You have to to put a PIN on your SIM card when you put it in? Up until I started to buy iPhones, all of my phones needed my PIN every time I boot. My understanding is that the iPhone saves the PIN... So if you unlock the iPhone, the iPhone unlocks the SIM card. Okay. Okay, so it's but happening. But the SIM card... Yeah, but I, I, I think it is happening here in Europe. 
But in countries that came from CDMA, I think the phones are being shipped without the pin enabled on the SIMs. Hmm. Which means you can take the SIM and shove it into another phone and it won't need a pin to work. Yeah, I've, I've simply never seen that, so I don't know. Well, that tells me for a fact that my suspicion is correct, that carriers in many parts of the world ship the SIMs without pins. Yeah. Hmm. So, so if you worrying. if you don't store your uh, passwords in the Notes app, does that mean none of this happens? Uh, it means it's much harder because the other thing that they are doing in some cases, and it's not clear, I think this is for people who don't have 2FA enabled. It, again, details are so sparse, it's most annoying. I can't, I can't give you a straight answer. It appears that in some cases, they are also attacking the iCloud keychain, but we don't know if that's only when people have bad iCloud passwords and that they're managing to get the iCloud password reset. Okay. A, a well, potential maybe we'll vector this one here, up in a couple of weeks. I, if more information comes out, I will definitely pick it up again. Yeah. Okay. But there was a lot of reporting about it and a lot of breathless reporting about, you know, Brazilian gang figure out how to steal your money by just stealing your iPhone. Apple somehow wrong. no Uh, that's not actually what the story is so i have done my best to to glean what little information i can out of the very sparse actual first you know first level information and this is the best i've been able to piece together i will keep jigsawing as best i can okay so um to make the audacity story even sadder um, I just oh, no. I just went for a search for other fork names and uh, discovered that the uh, cookie engineer is who forked the uh, Tenacity uh, fork, which was the main yeah. one that I, that was coming up. Um, apparently, he did a poll online for a new name, and 4chan decided to have some fun with it, and they <sighs> they filled the poll with people voting for Sneedacity, which is a throwaway Simpsons gag. Uh, apparently, and they want that's what they wanted. And Cookie Engineer just deleted the poll and picked Tenacity as the project's name. So they went after his family with weapons. He's abandoned the project. They f- physically went I, to his I home. I always thought I detested 4chan as much as it was possible to. I was wrong. You can detest him even more. Yeah, and yeah, I don't believe in violence, but violence against... Bullies? <laughs> Bullies is one thing, but violence against a guy trying to get a free audio editor for schools? Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, that's that's horse poop. <laughs> because he wouldn't take a Simpsons joke? Right, no. right. No. That, that's, so, ah. not tenacity. Poop. Yeah. All right. Okay, notable news. Oof, I don't know how I'm going to... Uh, I have a, a palate cleanser, thank goodness. Um... So the most notable piece of news, I think, that crossed my radar is that there is another option for people who want a private search engine. So last time we talked about... Uh, I can't remember Brave. The, uh, Brave. Brave, yes, uh-huh. thank you. Well, there is another option called Neva that's been in private beta for a while. It's sort of been on the back of my radar for a while. It's Their model is very straightforward. You pay us for search. It's a mm. subscription. Uh, So you are the customer, which makes it all very straightforward, follow the money, very easy. It's also run by a whole bunch of former Google engineers, which is very interesting. Oh, that's interesting. But they seem to have tried to bite off too much, in my opinion, because basically they want you to use a browser plugin, not just use their search. And I'm like, Mm. no, that's I just want a search engine. I'm happy to pay you five bucks a month, but I don't want a browser plugin. I don't want a a separate mobile app. Yeah. Just let me use your browser for four, you know, for five or a month. I need to be able to click in the URL bar and search from there. Yeah, I guess that is, the, that is the minimum viable product. And that's all I want. I don't want any more. So they're into ad blocking and all this kind of stuff. And they're trying to get you to install plugins. And I'm like, no, I didn't mm. ask for that. Just give me the search engine. Mm. So I don't, I don't know. I should love this. And I went to sign up. And their webpage was full of corporate rubbish and sending me these features I didn't want. I ended up not buying it. Mm. So I don't know. But it, it's certainly interesting that... Someone thinks they can make money selling search. So that is a much better business model than you being the product being sold to the advertisers. So I do hope this idea that maybe search is something worth buying is is, is going to prove. Yeah. Real. Yeah. Um, I have you marked in the show notes as being the person who sent this my way. And I'm not sure if I'm remembering correctly. 
Um, did you tell me that the German government are urging all of their government bodies to remove their Facebook pages before the end of the year? Uh, I may have. I definitely remember reading this article. Basically, they say that uh, Facebook just keeps violating the GDPR, so just get off. Yeah, and that's it. That, that's the whole story in a nutshell. So the Tiring. Germans are very serious about this. They've been one of the biggest drivers of actually implementing the GDPR because it's all good and well to write the law, mm. but if you don't follow it, what have you achieved? Yeah, exactly. So it's another, another more evidence of the Germans taking GDPR very seriously. So we shall see what happens at the end of the year. Um, on to excellent explainers. Kirk McElhern over at the Intego Security Blog has been very busy, but he's been writing really good stuff. So these are the kind of links that I keep in my, I keep them in Pocket, which is an app I use to track links and make the show notes. Uh, but I have a category in, in Pocket called For Reference, where I keep great things to send to family members and friends who are not technical. So the first one is A Parent's Guide to Protecting Kids' Privacy on Social Media. It basically goes through platform by platform, what the settings are, what they mean, and where you go and push what toggles. Oh, that's cool. So if you're a parent who's overwhelmed, here is someone holding your hand. Nice. And then the other one is a parent's guide to in-app purchases, which seems extremely <laughs> apropos, given the story we just talked about. How not to lose your car. How not to lose your car, basically. So again, Kirk just explains what it does, explains why you want to control it, and explains how you want to control it. It's just... They're just really good resources to have. I mean, none of us listening here are going to find this news, but it's really great to have something to give to our friends and family when they ask us the question. So, yeah, yeah, that's like cool. Uh, on to interesting insights then. Um, it made me really happy that there's a report from DigiDay, who are one of the big blogs in the advertising industry, titled How Apple's Private Relay Could Be the Beginning of the End for Fingerprinting on iOS Devices. Hallelujah. That was the bloody point. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, and definitely a related story. Uh, apparently, Apple's app tracking transparency rules are pushing advertisers to Android <laughs> and away from iOS. Yay. No, I thought, I thought uh, Google was uh, starting to implement something like it too, though. Something like, but the word something and like are doing a lot of heavy lifting. There. They, are not, they are not doing opt in. They're doing opt out which is really, arguably, nothing like. But they're certainly yeah. presenting it as being something like. Huh. So master, mastery of uh, subtlety in the way they're presenting that one. I mean, it's progress, but it's not the progress people think it is. Okay. And then a very interesting article on Naked Security that asked a very obvious question. So if I choose to pay the ransom because I'm desperate for my data, where does the money go? Is it really all that immoral? Short answer, yes, it bloody well is. You're destroying the internet. Stop it. But the, the much better story when they tell it. But don't pay the ransom. Right. That brings us on to my palate cleanser, oh, which good. is another podcast recommendation. So this is one of those sort of, I think it's a 10 episode mini series. So it's sort of a one off thing. You could sort of look at it as a short audio book or a long or, or a tiny podcast, I guess. Anyway, it's from the BBC World Service in, co in collaboration with BBC News. It is called The Lazarus Heist. It tells the story of the Lazarus Group, who are a cybercrime gang who have crossed our radar oh so many lot times in the last decade. I don't want to spoil too much of it by saying who they are and who they work for, but I promise you, Every episode, you're going to find yourself going, oh, yeah, I remember Barton Ellison talking about that. Oh, I remember Barton Ellison talking about that. <laughs> Basically, it's just, it strings together so many news stories we've covered in an amazing narrative. And it's told in such a way that you will be at the edge of your seat. Oh, wow. I love that. And the, 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 the sort of the, the key event that ties it together is a one billion with a B dollar cyber heist. Wow. If that doesn't get your attention, a billion dollar cyber heist? Yikes. Successful? Or is that the edge of your seat part? Um, I'm prepared to say it was not a failure. It, it, they did not get a full billion. Okay. They did not fail. If you attempt to steal a billion and you only partially succeed, you haven't done too badly for yourself. <laughs> yes, dream big. 
Exactly. So the answer is yes and no, but they did not fail. Wow. So fascinating stuff. I, I, I sort of thought I'd pepper in the odd episode here or there. No, I just binged it. <laughs> that was it. I just queued them all up straight after each other and just binged them all in two days last weekend. Um, How many is it? You said six? Ten. 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 Okay. I think, it's, I think it was ten, memory serves. The Lazarus heist. Are they, are they short? Uh, 45 minutes, if memory serves. Oh, okay. Okay, so it was quite the binge. Quite the binge. But yeah, as I said, I was, I was hooked. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So anyway, there's a, a recommendation for people. All right. Well, this wasn't the most uplifting of no. <laughs> security bits. Sorry about that, kids. Maybe next time. Yeah, that's what the universe does. Oh, look, it stopped raining now that I'm not cycling. I was going to say that our stories are in tune with our weather because I don't think I've ever gotten so wet. But I just looked out the window and the rain has stopped just when I'm not out there. I was going to say there's sunshine on your face. Thanks a lot. Yeah, well, thank you, universe. Apparently we're in for a week of good weather, so I'll take it, even if my Sunday was a bit damp. (laughs) All right, sounds good. Right, folks, remember, stay patched, especially on Windows, uh, so you stay secure. So the chat room took a little vote here and decided that they wanted me to read uh, the outro rather than Allison. So that's going to wind up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions. Everything is fiddly recordings, comments, and suggestions by emailing Allison at Allison at podfeed.com. Follow her on Twitter at podfeed. And remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Podfeed.com slash Patreon, podfeed.com slash PayPal, podfeed.com slash Facebook, and podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic notes of the castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.